In the 53rd Psalm, we find these words recorded by the pen of David. Psalm 53. He says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. <clears throat> God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Again, he said, every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Last week, we tried to look at, <coughs> excuse me, the eternal phase of salvation, meaning the things that took place before the world began. God's foreknowledge of his people, and from that him electing a people and predestinating us to be conformed to the image of his son and to be adopted into the family of God. Well, obviously God saw before the world began that there was going to be a need uh, for people to be chosen, for people to be predestinated, that there was going to be an event in time that was going to mar what God had created. Bible readers are very well acquainted with the third chapter of Genesis. Even many who have very little knowledge of the Bible probably know the story of Adam and Eve and how Satan came into the garden that God had given them and placed them in. And there they ruined what God had made beautiful and what God had made good. And so we come now to the life of David and David as he scans humanity and also says that God does as well. He says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We've looked for a number of weeks at some of the attributes of the very God of heaven. We've seen that he's an eternal God, that he's a God who's our refuge. He's a God who's omnipotent. He has all power. He's omniscient. He knows all things, and he's omnipresent in all places. He's a God that's self-sustaining. He doesn't have the need of our help or our assistance in any way whatsoever. He didn't create us out of loneliness. He didn't create us out of need. He created us simply out of his desire and purpose. And so you and I exist for the pleasure and purpose of God, uh, but he didn't do so because he needed anything. In fact, he uh, made it clear if he had need of anything, he would not tell us. Um, so there's no doubt, even Paul would say to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 1, that when you look out at nature, it testifies of his eternal power and Godhead. So nature itself declares not only that there is a God, that he is a God of power, but there's a Godhead. That it testifies that there are more than one that make up the person of the Godhead. And so we've looked at that, the person of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So how in the world has it become that now David says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We've come to a place now in history where, and in our day and time as well, where there are many who will adamantly say there is no God. They're called atheists. And then you have some that are called agnostic. They'll just simply say, well, we don't know if there's a God or not. They want to ride the fence just in case there is one, uh, but we're not sure there is. So agnostic, agnosticism means knowing. A, put an A in front of it means no, no knowledge. That's what it means. We have no knowledge. In the age of information and knowledge, how could anyone claim to be an agnostic? But an atheist says, the fool has said in his heart, 
and get it where, it's, where he says it. He says it in his heart. This is a heart issue. Brother Sonny Pyle, as I've heard say this before, and that back in his younger ministry, he would go head to head with atheists and try to logically convince them that there is a God. And then finally, it dawned on him what this verse says. They didn't have an intellectual issue. They had a heart issue. And until God dealt with their heart, Sonny Piles could not deal with their mind. And that's the same for me as a gospel minister. If God has not dealt with the heart of the child of God, I cannot address their mind and try to preach to them the gospel in a way that will find a lodging place in their mind and then that information connect with the law of God written in their hearts and then hopefully they're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I can't do that unless God has first appeared. In the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, if you'll recall when the Apostle Paul, having desired to go to Asia, then Bithynia, and God says no, and so instead uh, God directs him to Macedonia and he goes to the city of Philippi, one of the very first individuals he encounters as a believer is uh, a young lady, or we assume she's young, Lydia of the city of Thyatira, cell of purple. Notice what it says about her, whose heart the Lord opened so that she attended to the things which were spoken by Paul. If God had not already opened her heart, there's no way she would have listened to what Paul had to say in a believing way. She might have sat there and uh, listened and said, well, this is somewhat entertaining. This is fascinating. This is, uh, but it would not have made any spiritual sense to her whatsoever. And we find all over the book of Acts where men would listen for a while. Uh, and then at the end of it, what would they say? Is that the, these men are babblers. You know, what they're saying is nothing but confusion. It makes no sense. And so they would reject uh, what uh, the men of God would say. So obviously, after God created the world... And he says it's not only good, but he says it's very good. Then we find in the third chapter of the book of Genesis where man falls. Man uh, eats a piece of fruit that God commanded him of that tree he was not to eat thereof. He says, for in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. If you have a, a King James Bible with a good center column, there'll be a reference point over there. And there'll be an alternative phrase. In dying, thou shalt die. What does that mean? That you will bring a perpetual state of death. Meaning that this death would not impact only Adam. It would also extend to Eve. And that it would extend to all, um, not only just all humanity, but all creation. I mean, all living things at some point draw out their last breath. I mean, th man's sin has impacted the entire earth. All living creatures have been impacted uh, by the sin of Adam. And we know according to the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, that when he sinned, it was though you and I were there. And he represented us there that day when he took of that fruit. And so his sin passed upon all, for all have sinned. And so now we find the world is in the dark place that it's in. But God was not surprised by Adam's fall. He knew it would occur. What amazes me is God knowing that would still make the world anyway. <laughs> that God would still make Adam knowing that Adam would fall. Now, as we looked last week at the doctrine of predestination, God knowing that Adam would fall does not mean that he caused Adam to fall. Now, say, well, could he have stopped it? Well, yes, he could have stopped it. But obviously it was not in his purpose and will to stop it. And I don't understand all of that. All I know is, is that Adam sinned and he did it of his own volition. That means God did not cause it. God uh, uh, suffered it to be so, but God did not cause it to be so. 
Adam is fully to blame for the sin that now is in this world. God is not to blame. Uh, when we see the darkness of our culture and the wickedness that pervades our world today, and we look at this and think, how in the world could a good God uh, create such? This is not how God intended it to be. If you want to know how God intended this world to be, look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. That was God's intent. Man is the one who is responsible for the marred creation that we dwell in today. That's just how it is. But God, in his uh, marvelous mercy and kindness, uh, created man knowing that he would fall. Insomuch that he even uh, coveted with himself before the world began that his son, Jesus Christ, would come into this world to deliver uh, you and I from our sins through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. That's how much God loved you before the world began. When God foreknew you before the world ever was, he loved you uh, so much that he made a promise within himself that his son would come and die for us. Imagine how great a love that is. That's why John could say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. That even before God made the world, he knew we would fall and he would have to dispatch his son to this world and then uh, deal his son the blow of the wrath of God for the sins of the elect family of God. That's the manner of love God had for you before the world was. That ought to make you feel very special. Uh, you are in the sight of God. And thank God we are. So here David says, The fullest said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. He says, There is none that doeth good. Now in our nature, and that's what here David is dealing with. In our nature, there's none that doeth good. And then in verse 3, he's going to say, Just in case you think of an exception, he says, No, not one. <laughs> Not one individual upon the face of this earth in our own nature can do anything that is pleasing to God. We find the Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So where does the faith come from? Well, we know from the Word of God that God gives us faith. And when you and I exercise our faith, that pleases God. But who was the one who gave us the faith to exercise in the first? It was God that gave it. So who gets the praise and who gets the glory even when we do well in his sight? God does because it's God that worketh in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If it wasn't for God working in you both to will and to do, that means giving you the motivation and the ability. If it wasn't for God doing that in you, you wouldn't do the first thing that's pleasing in his sight. Obviously, we're considering this morning the doctrine of total depravity or the doctrine of original sin. I do want to say this, though, before we get too far about total depravity. When we use that word, we need to understand that when we, what we're talking about is that every aspect of man fail when Adam failed. It impacts every part of us. Our heart, our mind, our thinking... And even life itself, I mean, you at the quickened who were dead in trespasses and say, here we are dead in sins. That's our state and nature before God intervenes. Jeremiah chapter 17 makes it very clear that the heart is desperately wicked who can know it. So it affects our heart. According to the 8th chapter 
of the book of Romans, it also affects our mind. He says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity, that means an enemy of God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Our natural mind, our carnal mind, he said, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So it's affected our heart, it's affected our mind, according to Genesis chapter 6, Obviously, it's affected the mind of man because what does God say about the thoughts of man? In the sixth chapter of Genesis, very early in the dawn of history, things have gotten so terrible. In fact, some folks say, and don't, please don't say, can it get any worse? Yes, it can get worse. If you think it's bad right now, it can get worse. And sometimes it's hard to imagine it getting much worse, but it can. It got so bad in the day of Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And his wife, because of him, and his three sons and their wives were blessed. They built an ark, and they were saved. But what did God say about the creation? Number one, it, 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 it grieved God in his heart when he saw a man that he had made. I mean, the crowning creation of God in Genesis chapter 1 was mankind. Nothing else was made in the image of God as Adam was. And then Adam was given dominion over all flesh. God basically said, here's the earth. It's under your control. It's your dominion now. Now, after that, we find the Bible lets us know that this world, whose dominion is it under? It's under the dominion of Satan. Now, ultimately, it's under the dominion of Christ. But it is Satan who has a lot of control in this world wherein we dwell. So we find that God says that the thoughts and the imagination of man's heart was only evil continually. <laughs> now think about that. I mean, it was so bad that the thoughts of man and God, who knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts, this is what God said about it. He says the thoughts and the intents of their hearts was only evil continually. I mean, imagine living in that day. You didn't know uh, where you may be murdered, what might happen to your wife and children, uh, who might uh, steal everything that you have. Can you imagine living in a society where there was no restraint to the carnal nature of man? That's how it was in Genesis chapter 6. If you think it's bad now, thank God we have laws and we still have those uh, that are in charge that to a great degree are making sure those laws are obeyed. And when broken in most places still in our nation, uh, there's a justice system still at work uh, bringing men and women to trial and putting them in jail. I say in most places because if you read lately, there's some DAs in certain places that have stopped enforcing law. And if you want to find out how bad it can get, just, just stop enforcing law. <laughs> and we'll see what kind of anarchy we would have in our society. That's how it was in the days of Noah. That's how bad it was. I mean, we're not very far removed from the creation of the world. And now God says I'm just going to destroy all living flesh. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So of course Noah was spared and his family. And from that life uh, proceeds and continues on. But as we see and we know even in our own nature. We're fallen. Even as Paul would say in the seventh chapter of the book of Romans. After he was born of the spirit of God. He he writes for us the struggle that he as a child of God goes through. He says the things he hates, he's doing. <laughs> the things he loves, he finds it almost impossible to do. In other words, there's this internal struggle in the child of God. Why? Because you and I possess two natures. And so now two natures in one person, what happens? They war one against another. 
And so a child of God born of the Spirit of God, you have the Spirit of God, you're a partaker of the divine nature, and the divine nature abhors sin. But you're still a son of Adam or a daughter of Adam, and because of that you still have a carnal nature. When you were born of the Spirit of God, God did not remove that entirely. What God does do is place a new nature within you, but the old is still there. And so every single day of our life we continue to face a battle, uh, the new man against the old man. And that's why the Apostle Paul lets us know that you and I are to mortify the deeds of the flesh. That we're to crucify ourselves. Their, their language of that is uh, uh, pretty plain. It's also, uh, it seems quite severe, does it not? Paul says, mortify. What does that mean? Put to death. Crucify. What does that mean? Put to death. Uh, Paul doesn't uh, play around with sin when he addresses it. He says, put it to death. Now, the problem is, is you can put it to death, but it'll resurrect very quickly. It comes right back. A sin in our life is much like fruit on a tree. You could go out into an apple orchard and pick, say, just pick out one tree. Or here, Okay, we're in Florida. Take an orange tree. <laughs> And go out and pick every uh, piece of uh, fruit off of that orange tree and step back and say, you know what, that's not an orange tree anymore. Well, give it just a little bit of time. And you know what it's going to do? It's going to prove to you it's an orange tree again. It's going, if it's a good tree, it's going to produce fruit. You can pluck out every sin in your life in this moment and give it just another moment. And the fruit of that sin, it'll be back again. And that's why, you and I, that's why Paul says, I keep my body under subjection. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And Paul said, this is a daily struggle. This isn't something you just do one time and you're good. He says, I have to keep my body under subjection. Why, Paul? He says, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. A castaway literally means a shipwrecked person. Now, back in that day and time with wood vessels that uh, once they were destroyed, in some storm in, the, storm in the sea, what good were they? I, I guess they were good for firewood if you dried out the wood, but outside of that, what good was it? It wasn't good for its intended purpose as a vessel to uh, carry uh, individuals and in cargo. So here the apostle is saying, if I'm not careful about how I live my life, here's what's going to happen. He says, I am going to make shipwreck of my life, and when I preach to others here, I've just destroyed myself. And the purpose that God has called me to, which is preaching the gospel, I'm going to be useless in that going forward if I'm not very careful. And so the apostle was mindful about the old nature, and so do you and I have to be. It's something you can't just put life on cruise control and think that you're going to keep sin at bay. You're not. It takes vigilance. It takes diligence. It takes paying attention and strong effort to ensure that we do not fall into the uh, reproach of the devil and fall into various sins that would afflict us day by day. As we consider the doctrine of total depravity, as I want, it impacts our heart, our mind, our thoughts. It, it removes our life. I mean, we're, we're dead in trespasses and sins. That's how we enter into the world. And so what does David say in Psalm 39? Men at his best state. This is apart from the Spirit of God. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. That word vanity means meaningless, useless. That's where you and I are in our carnal nature separated from the Spirit of God. We're useless and we're meaningless. Now then that lets me know when the Spirit of God comes, we're no longer meaningless and we're no longer useless. And that's the encouragement. But... When somebody is in their nature, when they're 
when they've not been born of the Spirit of God, we often think of people in that state that they're so wicked, they're going to be on the level of a, of a Hitler or a Mussolini or a Stalin or bring it to more modern times of Bin Laden or, or folks like that. That's not what total depravity means. Now, any of us, apart from the Spirit of God, could go to that extreme. But not every person in their natural state is going to sin to that degree. So a person apart from the Spirit of God is not always going to be an Adolf Hitler. That's not what total depravity is teaching us. What total depravity is letting us know is that every part of our being has been affected by sin. So there's no part of us naturally that can respond or react to God or move towards God in a good way. That's not going to happen. So what must occur? Well, what happened to the life of Jacob? The Bible lets us know that God found Jacob where? It's not that Jacob found God. Jacob wasn't looking for God. Uh, Jacob was going looking for a wife and looking to get away from his brother. Uh, he was looking to uh, run away from something. He had no thoughts towards God. He wasn't concerned about God. Uh, he understood that God, the God of his father Abraham and the God of his father Isaac had blessed him. But there was a point in his life that he didn't claim God to be his God. Now, there would come a day in time that he would claim the God of his grandfather and the God of his father. But through a large part of his young life, Jacob had no thoughts towards God. As he was fleeing Esau, and he came to the place that he would later call Bethel, and he laid those stones there for a pillar. And if you'll recall, he dreamed a dream that night. And there was a ladder that rose from the earth to heaven, and he saw angels ascending and descending upon it. And the next morning when he rose up, what did he say? He said that this was the very gate of heaven. He said, the Lord was in this place, and I knew it not. Uh, what he didn't realize is God was still in that place. God was with him. Now, God made some promise in that dream to him. But you'll find that even then, he's still not too concerned about the things of God. Now, God is concerned with him. But he's not concerned with God. His focus is entirely on this world. But thankfully God's focus is on Jacob. So the Bible lets us know through the pen of Moses. He said that God found Jacob in the waste howling wilderness. And what does God do with him? He says he loved him and he made him the apple of his eye. Uh, that's what God did towards this man who had no thoughts towards God. God went to where Jacob was. Jacob did not go to where God was. And that's the case for every one of us. If you love the Lord, it's not because you moved towards Him. It's because He first moved towards you. 1 John 4, 19, we love Him because He first loved us. If God is not the causative uh, uh, individual or person in the relationship between you and, uh, you and Him, then you're not going to love God. And there's no amount of effort that man can make to the wicked of this world to convince them that there is a God and He's to be loved. <laughs> That's just the reality. And, so, and, and it's been this way from the time of the fall. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. And then he goes on to let us know, By the obedience of one, many were made righteous. So understanding the matter of our being sinners and in the matter of our being righteous there's one person over both of those two things and if you are in the category of sinner which you are because you're living and breathing that means there was a man that represented you in the garden of eden his name is adam and when he fell you fell in him but if you have any righteousness within you 
The same way that there was one that represented you carnally, there's one that represents you before God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. For by one man's disobedience, sin into the world, but by one man's obedience, many were made righteous. It wasn't because you found out the pattern, the way, the method to get yourself from a state of death and sin to a life in Christ. No, Jesus had to take care of that for you. Uh, one of the problems about sin is it, it brings us to a place that we, we cannot hear. In the book of John, we find the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he didn't hold back when he met with uh, the wicked of this world. <laughs> he called a spade a spade, if we could put it that way. He just said things exactly as they were. John chapter 8, verse 44. Notice what Jesus says to a bunch of wicked Jewish Pharisees. He says, ye are of your father the devil. I mean, talk about trying to win friends and influence people. Uh, Jesus didn't care about that. And too many ministers in this world, all they really want to be is individuals who are popular and make everybody happy and be inclusive and bring great crowds of people together. Jesus did about the opposite. He told the truth and it dispersed the crowd. And he wasn't, uh, notice what he goes, he says, you're of your father the devil and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. He says, when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own for he is a liar and the father of it. He says, and I, because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. He says, which of you convinced me? I mean, who would convict me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye believe me not? Well, he's going to tell them why they don't believe him. Verse 47, he says, he that is of God heareth God's words. Ye, there hear, ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now, that's pretty plain, is it not? Jesus says, here it is, you don't hear me, I've told you the truth, you don't believe me, you won't believe me, you want to convict me of sin because I'm telling you the truth. He finally concludes this, he that is of God heareth God's words. What Jesus is saying, what I have told you are the words of God the Father himself. He says, so if you will not hear God's word, what do we have to conclude? He says, ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. You're not from God. You're not chosen by God. You're not in Him. And He's not in you. And so an individual that's not in God, that was not known by God before the world began, in His foreknowledge, His predestination, and His election, cannot hear the words of God. Now, obviously there have been points in history where God audibly spoke, and righteous and wicked both. He's not saying that if God were to ring out his voice from heaven, that a, an unregenerate individual, a person not born of the Spirit, could not naturally hear what God would have to say. That's not what he said. What he's letting us know is that the words of God, meaning the truth, the reality that there's a God in heaven and that he is sovereign and he has all power and that he sent his son in this world, that Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God, came to be the Messiah, uh, the, the anointed one uh, to represent the father in the matter of salvation and also to represent him. They would not receive those words. Why? It was the truth. <laughs> and they would not hear the truth because they were not of God. So a person apart from the spirit of God, they, they can't hear. So if you can't hear... How can you understand? According to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul lets us know that the natural man, a man in his natural state, receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned, meaning spiritually understood. 
So if I'm going to understand the words of God, I have to be more than a natural man. Because again, he lets us know that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. So a man in his natural state, no wonder when those men on the day of Pentecost, as we looked at a few years, uh, days ago, um, when they heard those men preach, what they say? They mocked. I said, these men are drunk on new wine. Why? Because what they had to say was foolishness to them. Why? They weren't born of the Spirit of God. They were not of the Father. And so the gospel had no impact to them. What Jesus had done, they didn't care the first thing about. Why? Because they were natural men, and natural men received not the things of the Spirit of God. He says, they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So Jesus tells us that those individuals that are not of God, they cannot hear God's words. Now, Paul tells us that if we do not have the Spirit of God, we cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. So how in the world does a person become spiritual if you as a natural man can't even discern spiritual things? That's the conversation that Jesus had with uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He lets them know that there are earthly things and earthly individuals understand earthly things. There are heavenly things, but to understand heavenly things, must one must have a heavenly nature. And that's why he would let Nicodemus know, ye must be born again. In order to see and enter into the kingdom of God, a person has to be born again. And that word born again also means born from above. A birth that happens from above. A birth that God causes. A birth that God brings about. Not a birth that man brings about through the preaching of the gospel. Not a birth that comes about by being baptized in water. That's not what brings about our life in the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to come directly and divinely from God Himself. That's how a man who is carnal becomes spiritual. Is God imparts to that individual a spiritual life. And now that individual can understand and can hear the words of God. In John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ says this in verse 27. If, excuse me, verse 26. He says, ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you. Then he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Now this is all pretty black and white. Very elementary, I think. It really needs someone to guide you to misunderstand it. What did Jesus say? He says, ye believe not. Why? Because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. So a person who's not of Christ, who doesn't belong to Jesus, who are at least at this point is not born of the Spirit of God, cannot hear, cannot understand, and cannot believe. That's why Paul would say in that argument in Romans chapter 9 about election, it's not of him that willeth, nor him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, it says, He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, notice this, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So here he just says, Jesus came to this world, his own he came to, but his own received him not. 
But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. I believe we understand what that means. That here those that did receive him, how did they receive him? Because God had brought them into the family of God. And here they are, the sons of God. And he says, which were born. How? He says, they were not born by blood. It didn't come by family lineage. It didn't matter if you were the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Levi. If you were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, that didn't matter. He says, it's not by blood. It's not by family relation that you're brought into the family of God. He says, so it doesn't matter who you're born to. That's not how you are in the family of God. He says, nor is it the will of the flesh. As much as the flesh, which the flesh, if, if you're not born of the Spirit of God, you're not going to want anything to do with the Spirit of God. But just in case somebody says, well, the flesh just has to get willing. Well, the flesh will never be willing, according to what uh, John says here. He says, they were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man. You say, well, I hope so and so. Uh, would love God. It doesn't matter what you desire about it. Where, where does it matter? It says, the one that has to be willing is God himself. So he says, it doesn't matter who you're born to, what desire you have, or what desire somebody else has for you. If it's not the desire and will of God, it's simply not going to occur. It's that black and white. It's that simple. Thankfully, though, we see that God does give divine life to his elect. That's the vital part of salvation. We looked last week briefly at the legal phase, excuse me, the eternal phase, the legal phase, the vital phase, and the final phase. Well, we'll look at the vital phase later on in this series, but that's where divine life, that's where the Spirit gives to us eternal life and where Jesus becomes real to us. And the sacrifice of his life on Calvary means something to us. And then all of a sudden, our sins also mean something to us. Our sins cause us to mourn. And we have a desire to repent and do differently and do better. How does that happen? That, becomes, that comes to us because God inserts that into our life. Not because we were born into a particular family or we had a certain desire. Somebody else had a desire for us. But that God, he had a desire toward us. Again, Paul says in Romans 5 that here we are in this condition because of one man's sin. You can like that. You can not like it. But it's the reality. We're in this situation because one man was disobedient to the commandment of God. And he brought death into this world and death by sin. So death passed upon all for that all have sinned. So we're sinners before God, first of all, just because Adam's our father. That's enough. That right there is sufficient to condemn us forever. But... Don't worry, <laughs> there's more. God, if he is going to condemn you, he'll use more than that. According to Psalm 51, David says this, that I was conceived in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And he didn't say by that, my mother and father did something sinful. And by that I was, con what he's letting us know, that in his very nature, in the moment he was conceived, he was a sinner. He was conceived in iniquity and in sin. Again, I believe his mother and father were godly people. They were married. They went about it the right way. But the problem is, is that they likewise inherited from Adam a sinful nature. And so when David was conceived in his mother's womb, 
that sin passed all the way from Adam uh, down to Jesse and his mother, and it came to him. And so here David says, here I am, a sinner by nature. In the womb, here we are. God would say in the 8th chapter of the book of Genesis, as he's wrapping up the story about the flood, that man is a sinner from his youth. Uh, From the beginning of our experience, we're already a sinner. So we're sinners by representation, and that's all that it takes. Uh, Just by being in the family of Adam is enough to condemn us. But as soon as we're conceived in the womb of our mother, we're a sinner by nature. And then when we come into this world, what happens? We immediately are sinners by practice. There's a lot of times uh, our daughter's uh, coming up on four months of age. Isn't that right? Four months? Yeah, she's about to be four months old. Um, And she lies all the time. (laughs) All the time. Every day that child lies. Y'all can say, but she's so pretty. She's so innocent. She she is pretty, but she's not innocent. (laughs) She's a sinner. How do I know that? Because I'm one and so is her mother. Uh, We are. And I know the doctrine of the word of God. And so she's a sinner. And every day she cries when there's nothing wrong. Nothing wrong at all. She's been fed. She's been nestled. She's been loved. That girl can be laying on the bed and screaming because nobody is paying her. And all I have to do is walk up and say a word to her, her eyes. She goes from a cry to a smile instantly because she just wants attention. I don't know who she takes after in that regard. But anyway, um, by practice, we're sinners from the moment we come out of the womb. And then as soon as that child starts crawling, I know this because we have three others, you know what they're going to start, she's going to start doing? Reaching for things she's not supposed to. Trying to get into things that would cause her harm. Why? Because she's a sinner and she's going to be misdirected. She's like a sheep gone astray. And so we're going to have to correct her like we have the other three. And then as they get older, you know what they do? They start talking. And then what do they do? Well, they say things they shouldn't say. Uh, They speak to their parents in ways that get them in a lot of trouble. Sometimes they lie and that gets them in even more trouble. They speak to their siblings in ungodly ways. And it's uh, you just watch. And of course, if you've had more than one child and you watch them strive together, you see in your own household this little ecosystem, the reality of the doctrine of original sin and total depravity. That's just the reality. If we're honest with ourselves, now there's some individuals, you know, when they end up locked up in jail, uh, their parents come on the scene, well, my son or my daughter never would do that. Well, the problem is, is that parent has said that all the way back to when they were a child and never did correct them and now they're wondering why their child is part of the judicial system because you never corrected them along the way I'm going to be I'm going to try my best and be honest about mine they're wicked they are because I am too but so far in the three that are old enough to show any activity at all of using their minds in a way that I can comprehend I think I'm seeing evidence that they belong to the Lord. And that causes me to rejoice. And I also know because what I read to you in John chapter 1, that's not because they were born to me and my wife. It's not because they had a desire towards that. And it's not because as their father and the pastor of this church, it was my desire that they would have a love towards God. I know that if they possess that, it's because God gave it them directly, apart from me, apart from their mother, apart from any other human agency or means. 
According to Romans chapter 3, <clears throat> as the Apostle Paul quotes for us there both Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, he lets us know where the activity of man brings us. He says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10, he says, that is, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. He says, there is none that understand it. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. And then he's going to list out for us some of the specific sins. He says, their throat is an open sepulcher. Notice that their throat is an open grave. Well, what does a grave give us thought of? Death and corruption. So he's letting us know that that's what man in his nature speaks are words of death and words of corruption. He says, there's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. That's where we are in our carnal nature. He says, their throat is an open sepulcher with their tongues they have used deceit. So we have corruption, we have death, now we have lying. He says, as he goes on, the poison of asps is under their lips. So we have death, corruption, uh, then we have lies, and now we have poison that now impacts and infects others around us. So here we are in our nature and our activity is that we're going to speak corruptible things, things that bring death and that prove that we are in a state of death apart from the love of God. If we're going to uh, speak deceitful things, we're liars if we're uh, apart from the Spirit of God. And in fact, uh, John will tell us in 1 John 1 verse 10, if any man says he hath no sin, he's a liar and the truth's not in him. <laughs> That's why Paul would say, let God be true and every man a liar. <laughs> but anyway... And he says, not only that, our words are poisonous. They spread disease and destruction to others as well. He says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You notice Paul's taken up now two verses to describe to us just the sins of the mouth. Then he says, their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no, here's how he puts the capstone, there is no fear of God before their eyes. <clears throat> Say, well, why, that's the worst part of it all, and that's why all that other's possible. Because there's no fear of God before their eyes, they'll do all these other things. A person who fears God will do their best not to be guilty of these things. But this person who has no fear of God, they don't fear God. Who are they going to fear? I mean, they may fear consequences in this world, maybe. <clears throat> maybe not. I mean, look at some of the crime that goes on in our world today. I'm having a deal right now in my job with, uh, I don't want to get too, but anyway, uh, there's a person that I'm having to try to work with and as I read the history of this property, this person has seen them, their son convicted of a double homicide and since put to death by the state of Florida. Lawfully. Can you imagine what that would be? But here's, that's, that person didn't have any fear of the consequences of their sin. And a person that doesn't fear God, if they also don't fear the consequences that man can bring, is a very dangerous person in this world. And there's people in this world that will go about and let us, well, there's a little good in everybody. No, there's not. There's a lot of evil in everybody. 
And those that are born of the Spirit of God, now they have the Spirit of God in them, and there is good in them now. And if they'll follow the Spirit of God and live a godly life, they'll be a benefit and a blessing, not only uh, here in the church of God, but also in our society. But if not careful, the Bible even lets us know that the person who's born of the Spirit of God, who continually denies the leadership of the Spirit of God and continues after the carnal nature of man, before long their conscience can be seared, and they, uh, it, it, their past feeling is that, as God just seals them off from his uh, uh, presence and guidance and all of a sudden it's almost like they're not born again now they are there's just no evidence of it in their life and so even after we're born of the spirit of God we still have to contend with the fact that we're sinners by nature and we're also sinners by practice the apostle Paul when he writes to the church at Rome sin is a big issue he lets us know in Romans chapter 1, basically what happens in society. He talks about societal sin. And he lets us know that it grows and it worsens. And if you read Romans 1 and you look at American culture today, they mirror each other identically. I mean, we're pretty much exactly at the point where Paul talks about in the first chapter of the book of Romans. And so he talks about the degradation of a society then in, and then he also in Romans chapter 1 deals with the sins of the Gentiles then he gets to chapter 2 and he lets the Jews know by the way you're just as guilty as the Gentiles are you had a law they didn't you've broken the law you knew better and then he comes to chapter 3 and he lets us know that we're all sinners they were all guilty and he gets Pretty specific to us individually. And then when we finally move to chapter 5 where we already quoted, he lets us know the root cause of why it is that the Jew and the Gentile and you as an individual and society as a whole is in this state. It's because by one man's disobedience, sin entered into the world. And so Paul deals with societal sins, with the sins of the Gentiles, the sins of the Jews, the sins of you individually. And then he tells us why we're in this state. It's because one man was disobedient to what God said. And so as much as we would like to wipe it out of the way and, and just forget about it and maybe ignore it, the fact is it so pervades uh, humanity, there's no way to escape it because of one sin. Look how far-reaching that has been. It affects entire nations, entire empires. And then it goes down to affecting a community. And then we can bring it smaller, affecting your home, bring it lower, affecting your own life. That's how far widespread sin is. It's nothing to be mocked at. It's nothing to scoff at. It's real. But thankfully, I love the verse in Romans chapter, the end of chapter 5, where sin abounded. Grace did much more abound. So it is true that sin is abounded in this world, and it's abounding right now. Um, you know, just any day... I, I don't even know the last time I turned on news on television. I've quit watching news quite a while back now. I still keep up to date. I read news most every morning, like just about every morning. I spend time reading the news to see what's going on. One thing about it, when you read the news versus watching it, you can read it in your own voice instead of the hyped up voices of those who are trying to sell commercials. And so you can read a little more calmly, hopefully, a little more objectively, perhaps. But anybody who's paying attention to Anything going on in our nation and world, sin is abounding. It seems almost unchecked. 
But thank God, and the, the, the problem with things in our culture right now is that there's so much focus on the negative. Why? Because that's what sells. That's what will bring people back. Back when I was hooked to watching Fox News, there was literally days that would be on TV from morning till night in the background. And that's all I'd hear. I got tired of that finally, and so that's been turned off for a long time. But um, it's there. We're living in a society where it's, it's about, but thankfully, even though they don't want to put focus on this reality, grace is much more abounding. It may not be in the news. It may not be uh, forefront in the attention of the American mind or the minds of people in this world, but just remember, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Where, where sin abounded in your heart and life, when you're born of the Spirit of God, grace has much more abound. And hopefully if you're trying to live a godly life to please the Lord Jesus Christ, it's abounding in a very um, thoughtful way, but also in a very evident way to other individuals. But even if not, even if you've been born of the Spirit of God and you're still living after the uh, desires of the flesh and after the course of this world and the uh, pursuits of this world, don't... I mean, be concerned of the judgment of God while you live, but thank God at the end of all of that, sin will still, I mean, excuse me, grace will still much more abound. How do I know that? Because as soon as you close your eyes, and uh, sin will end. It will stop. But your life in Christ will continue. And so even though sin may be abounding, even in the life of a child of God, ultimately grace will much more abound even for that individual. That's why even as we look at the doctrine of total depravity, and it can be a depressing thing to look at, consider, and think about, however it is something I think it ought to be considered on a daily basis to remember that in Adam he represented you and made you a sinner. That you were conceived in sin and so by nature that's just simply what you are and that's what you will do by nature. And then you can see that displayed in your life day by day and it's uh, important to be mindful of the root cause. And then the secondary cause be by being born to your parents and then also the activity that you do. Be aware, be mindful, then hopefully then you'll be vigilant and sober and attempt not to live that way of life. But as depressing as the subject can be, thankfully, as we saw last week, God took care of that issue before the issue even became an issue. One of the great things about providence, what does that word mean? When you break that word down in the Greek, pro and vide, vide video to see, pro has the connotation before, God sees before. When somebody calls a husband and father a great provider, what's he doing? Is he just earning a pay? No, he's seeing before needs that are out there. And so he's actively working and hopefully wisely preparing so that when the needs arise in the family, the means are there to take care of it. When your wife or mother goes to the grocery store on a weekly basis or however often, what are they doing? They're seeing before there's going to be a need. And so instead of rushing out last minute or after the fact that there's already hunger in the home, hopefully they've seen before, planned, prepared, and that need will never arise. I mean, that situation, because it's already there. That's what God did before the world began. Before the world began, God already saw 
what was going to happen. And so God provided. That's the story of Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham goes up into the mountain with Isaac to offer him up to God. God was going to show Abraham there that day that God was a God of provision. He was a provider. That God is a God of providence. That God saw before. And so when Abraham went up on that mountain, God already knew that there would be a ram caught in the thicket there. And Isaac would not lose his life that day. Abraham didn't know that. By faith, Abraham did exactly what God told him. And by faith, he knew that God would raise him up from the dead. Because it was in uh, Isaac that his seed would be blessed. So God, uh, Abraham knew if God takes his life, <laughs> he'll bring his life again. But God already knew there would be a ram caught in the thicket there. God saw that, but he also wanted Abraham to see that God is a God of providence, that God sees our need before, and he's met our eternal need before the need arose. He made a covenant with himself, as we talked about last week, to address the issue of sin. Knowing that man would fall, he didn't step back and say, you know what, they're going to fall, it's going to cause me to have to... Tell my son to go into the world. So let's just not create the world and create man. He could have said, well, we're going to create man, but they're going to, we're going to make him a robot where he just cannot do of his own will, and he cannot sin. He could have done that. But God chose to make man the way that man was made, knowing that man would fall. But God didn't leave it without a solution. As the wise woman of Tekoa said to King David in the trick and the deception to bring uh, Absalom back to David's home and to the city, she said, we are as water spilled on the ground that cannot be gathered together again. And then she says, but God had devised means that his banished be not expelled from him. Now she did not intend what she said there to carry the weight that those words carried. She was working through a general of David to deceive the king to bring Absalom back, which would end up with Absalom uh, stealing the hearts of the people of God, uh, turning against his father in betrayal, and trying to take the throne uh, away from his father. And this woman was helping along, but she spoke an eternal truth in the midst of all that. That God had devised means that his banished. What happened when you and I fell in sin and we were banished from God? That's where we would have been uh, separate from the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit and imparting divine life to us. That's where we would have been. God, though, devised means that his banished be not expelled from him. That means that we would not be a, a, a permanent a, a, <laughs> abhorrence in the sight of God. That God devised a way that his banished would be brought home. And of course that came in the person of Jesus Christ. Who died for our sins so that where sin abounded grace would much more abound. And then the Holy Spirit will give us life. So that you and I in our carnal nature who will not hear, cannot hear, cannot believe, cannot understand. Are then born of the Spirit of God. We're partakers of the divine nature and now we can hear the words of God. We can understand the things of the Spirit of God. And we can now believe in the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that, how did it happen? By the grace of God. Your deliverance from your representative came by another representative. 
in human history, there's been two representatives that have been over you in matters pertaining to whether you're going to be in heaven or not. The first one failed. He's called the first Adam. The second representative, which the Bible says he's the second Adam, but also thank God it puts in there he's the last Adam. He's the second to represent you, but actually he represented you before Adam ever did. So the works of Adam brought us to where we were in sin. But the works of Jesus, just as Adam effectively represented us, Paul addresses that in Romans 5. Sin, it spread, it moved, it had its way. He says, not as the offense, but also is the free gift. In other words, just like the offense spread, it was effective, it moved. The free gift that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's effective. It's not a failing gift. It's a gift that is effective. You know, the Bible says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary is effective. The free gift given to you and I through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is more effective than what was brought to us by our father Adam. The free gift that we have in Christ, it expands, it abounds, it superabounds in our life. And thank God that's reality. So that as we consider the topic of original sin and the depravity of our nature, we can look and hope and also the confidence that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's been taken away. That's why Paul could say as he wraps up sin in the seventh chapter after he's born again and he's struggling with the matter of sin in his own life and wanting to do that which is right, but finding himself still doing that which is wrong, then he opens up Romans chapter 8. I love how he opens it up. There is therefore now no condemnation of them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's how that chapter opens. That, it's like Paul has closed the chapter in darkness there. In, what does he say in Romans? Who shall deliver me? From the body of this death. That's what is on his mind. I'm struggling here. And I'm going about with a carnal nature. Like a dead man strapped to me. Who's going to deliver me? And he says I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And then he says there is therefore now. No condemnation of them who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not after the flesh. But after the spirit. That's where you and I stand today. There's no condemnation. And thankfully as we read throughout that chapter. You're also going to find. That there's no one that is going to conquer you because there's no separation from the love of God. May God bless you today as well.